0: This is First Timothy three. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we need to hear from you, and so I pray that my words uh, would be your words, Lord, I pray that you would empower uh, this time and empower me to speak in ways that would honor you, that would draw people to you. Lord, we are full this morning of people who are hurting, people who need your comfort, people who can't stand to think about waking up tomorrow and facing another week. Some of us have lost people near to us. Some of us have lost jobs, lost means of income. Some of us have lost friends. Lord, others of us are just confused. We don't know where the truth is. We're not sure that the truth lies here. And so I pray that, Father, you've said that you are the truth, that Jesus is the truth. And so I pray that we would encounter him. Jesus, we pray that you would come, you would speak to us, that you would uh, use this time to further your purposes in the world and further your purposes in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the um, novelist Anne Rice shocked the, the public that after converting from atheism to Christianity, that she was now leaving Christianity, quitting Christianity, but not quitting Jesus. And she wrote, Today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, as always, but, I'm, but not to being a Christian or being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years, I've tried and I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. Or maybe you've considered that route. I know I have, though I like having a job, so I decided against it. But she goes on to say, My faith in Christ is central to my life. My conversion from a pessimistic atheist lost in a world I didn't understand to an optimistic believer in a universe created and sustained by a loving God is crucial to me. But following Christ does not mean following his followers. Christ is infinitely more important than Christianity and always will be. Now, the silver lining for this, is, for me at least, is that apparently she got rid of most of her Christian library, and I'm not sure why, because she lives in New Orleans, but a lot of it showed up here at Powell's, and so I got a lot of great literature and great commentaries on the cheap with a stamp of Anne Rice. It's pretty interesting. But her question that her story raises is, can you have Christ without Christianity? Can you have Jesus without his story or without his church? And her story, her departure, resonates with many of us. Perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, well, I, I really like Jesus. I like what he represents. I like his basic moral teaching, but not the church. I've had it with the church. I, uh, if it means being a part of the church to follow Jesus, forget it. And Woody Allen sympathizes with you. And Hannah and her sisters, the great Max von Sydow, Says if Jesus came back and saw what was going on in his name, he'd never stop throwing up. It's an interesting picture. And maybe the church does feel like too much trouble at times. But, you know, for others of us, the church has been an extraordinarily positive experience in your life and in your story, and it's not that you're not aware of some of the hurtful, weird things that people do in the name of Jesus, but for you, the church has been a place of caring and a place of acceptance, and it embraced you perhaps when others wouldn't. It accepted you in the midst of a a huge struggle, and maybe through that struggle, the church was able to communicate to you in in ways other people or other institutions couldn't that God actually did care for you. Now, we're looking at a passage this morning that describes the church in three primary ways or three images and that convey both the real brokenness of the church as well as the real beauty. And Paul says here that the church is a household, it's a community, and it's a foundation. And so we're going to look at those in order. First of all, a household. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, who is a protege of his. He's a young church planter, and at this point he's planting a church in Ephesus. And he's writing him to say, I hope to visit you in person, but in the meantime, as you go about planting churches, I want you to know how people in those churches ought to live their life. I may be running late, he says, but I want you to think about how you are to live in the household of God. The Greco-Roman household was a very critical, very important institution. It consisted of many different groups and duties and responsibilities. And larger households even had stewards that managed the household on behalf of the master. And they were given authority to direct all of the members to utilize the resources and to organize its daily life in a way that furthered the master's purposes. And this concept was so ingrained in the thinking in the Greco-Roman world in Ephesus that these associated notions of this interdependence, acceptable conduct, and belonging was so strong that Paul could use that to explain what he meant by the church. What Timothy was there to start, he used this concept to explain it. And this phrase depicts God's people as a household whose master is God. The church is God's household. It's his family. Now, maybe we like Jesus, but his family sort of gets on our nerves. And that's true of our belonging in any family. We want to be a part of our family, but honestly, many people in our family get on our nerves. And Augustine, St. Augustine is credited as saying, in the fourth century, sentiments close to Woody Allen, and he says, the church is a whore, but she is my mother. What's well, it's a shocking way to put it, no doubt, but think about his point. For all the failings of the church, she still gives birth to, sustains, and nurtures believers. And none of us can choose to not have a mother. No matter, bad, no matter how bad our mother is, we still have an organic relationship with her that can't be severed. And as we talked about last week, we don't choose our mother, we don't choose our father, we don't choose our parents, we don't choose our family. And if you're in a relationship with Jesus, like it or not, you're in a relationship with all of his followers who are in his church, and thus we are consigned to a lifetime of loving people that maybe we don't like all that much. We understand this in our own families because all of our families have difficulties. And so when you're a college student and you come home for Christmas break, it feels different. It feels weird. You have to deal with some of the things that you wanted to leave home for. We come home and visit. We have family reunions. We gather at the holidays. And we sit around the table with our family, staying under one roof, sharing memories, and sometimes this can be a marvelous time, it can be a wonderful time, but even in the best of families, there are inappropriate jokes. There are stories about your past that you wish wouldn't get retold. Do you remember the time that you, I've experienced that in my family when I come home and all of my stories that I wish wouldn't get told again do. Um, And Katie learned a lot about me the first few times she came home with me from my brother and particularly my dad. Um, but we have these old wounds that are reopened, and parents and children fall back into patterns that were appropriate to a prior way of relationship, appropriate maybe 10 or 20 years ago. But you see, the family, despite those challenges, doesn't dissolve when there's conflict. You say, I don't like you right now. In fact, I want to punch you in the mouth. But because you're my family, I'm just going to go into my room and pout for the next three days until I get to go home and leave again. No, we don't do that, or hopefully not. In a family, you can't avoid difficult people. You can't blow off important events, and so there's bound to be conflict. There's bound to be times where you don't really want to participate, but you do so because it's your family. The things that you hold in common with your siblings, with your parents, with your children, are so much more significant than the minor dysfunctions and the disagreements that you have, the inconveniences. But if we're honest, it's it's not just what others bring into the family. It's not just about others' dysfunction, but it's ours. We contribute to it. We bring our baggage into the family And this is where family bonds and family commitments actually work in our favor. Because if you're a Christian, if you're a member of Jesus' family, you belong to the household of God himself. And friends, you get in by birth. You get into the family by grace, not because you earned a spot. And so this works in your favor because it means that your bad behavior, your baggage doesn't disqualify you from being a part of the family, from being a part of the household. It doesn't jeopardize your place at the table. You have a seat. You have a role to play. You have an important function in God's household. If you're a member of the church, it in many ways becomes your family with all of the challenges and all of the benefits that that brings with it. Now, first of all, we see he calls it a household. The church is a household or a family. But secondly, it's a community. It's a place of belonging. It is the church of the living God. The closest Greek synonym is for the word ekklesia is assembly. And dictionaries of ancient Greek say that the word means a gathering of citizens that are called out of their homes to belong to something else, into some public assembly. The assembly or the, the church consists of people called out of their everyday lives, out of their primary family structures, out of the communities that they've inhabited that have alternative centers of meaning. They've been called out of those to find a different center, to find a different community. There was a, a great temple in Ephesus, and it was, a temple, it was a temple of worship. And in the temple was a statue of Artemis the daughter of Zeus, and she was a statue. And as the group, as the gospel began to take root in Ephesus, Timothy was to call people away from worshiping that statue of Artemis, from worshiping stone idols, to worship who? Paul says here, the living God, the God of all creation, the God who is actually alive. He doesn't reside in totems or statues, but He is alive and present somehow amongst you in the community. He is alive and present in the church. When you think about the communities that you inhabit, they they all have a center. Maybe it's not a stone statue, but there's something that is ruling and guiding each of the communities that you inhabit. Your families have house rules. Here's the way that we live. Here's the way that we go about business. Here's the sort of guardrails for our family. And everything goes swimmingly when everyone follows the rules. But you really get to see what guides the family, what's at the center of the family when someone, what, breaks the rules. When someone becomes a rule breaker, they become, generally speaking, either a target of criticism and correction or in more healthy families, a recipient of grace and forgiveness and a reminder that their behavior doesn't jeopardize their place in the family. You see, the the rules may be the same. The guardrails may be set in the same place, and they're just as important in both systems. But you get to see that while one family might, might be outwardly Christian, what is really ruling the family is fear. It may be performance. It may be conformity while the other one is centered upon the radical grace and acceptance and says that the relationship is more important than performance. It's more important than sameness or conformity. Now, we all know that no family is perfectly one or the other, but you quickly learn where the gravitational pull is. And the same thing is true with the church. And we see this in our peer groups, our workplace, and as I said, in the church? Is the living God at the center of the church? Is He the gravitational pull? Is it the redeeming God who sent His Son to offer forgiveness and to set people free, or is it a set of rules that everyone must be bound to? And you see, communities founded upon rules, founded upon the law, seem to honor God's holiness. They seem to, but they end up implying that belonging to God's community is based upon how well you do, how well you perform, how well you stay within the guardrails. Churches where the living God is at the center alternatively tell you that there's no way that you could come into God's household except through grace, and that's what makes your, your seat safe. What they say is that God's house rules are so transcendent and so exacting that you could never, them, never follow them adequately enough to belong. Thankfully, that's not how any of us belong. That's not how any of us get a seat in God's household and His community. Unlike any other community that you've ever belonged to, you don't get in through your acceptability but through His acceptance. And you only come to learn this fully in a community that's organized around that truth, that lives with the living God at the very center of who they are. The God who is alive with grace and forgiveness makes you His and then says, follow the rules. He grants you life everlasting and makes membership in His household, gives you membership in His household, and then says, here are the house rules. Every college you apply to will seek to determine whether you fit in, whether you qualify. Every job that you interview with, we'll see how good of a fit you are with the team, with the the culture of the company. And peer groups generally coalesce around conformity, around sameness, around fitting in. But the living God says His mercies are new every morning, and you belong based upon His love and grace, not because of your fitness. We see Paul writing to Timothy and telling him To teach the church at Ephesus that God's church is a household. It's also a community. And then finally, it's a foundation. Verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And maybe you're thinking, uh oh, well, here's where things get heavy. We've heard about the carrot. Now comes the stick. This is the truth. This is the rules. This is the law. And indeed, Paul does tell Timothy, here's what he wants the church to know, how to live in the household of God. Here are the house rules, right? Here is the truth that you are to live by. But what is Paul's truth? What is the truth that he wants the church at Ephesus to live by? Well, let's look back up to chapter 1, and he says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. That he considered me trustworthy, according, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In ancient architecture, there were pillars that held up a certain thing that that said what the building was. So you have these pillars holding up this great artifice that has the name of the building, what the building is for. The message that is on the top of the church, the message that is held up by the pillars of the church, is that God is at home with broken people, that he has approached sinners in the person of his Son with grace. And it's only in Jesus, it's only in his Son that we see the seriousness of God, the holiness of God, as well as his approachability and his incarnational grace. It's only when the church is the pillar and foundation of this truth, of the truth, the person of Jesus himself, that we don't get seduced either by truth without without grace or grace without truth. You see, if our pillars hold up that we are a church of grace without truth, well, this says or this implies that we are accepted by God regardless of what is true. And in that church, you never come face to face with the depth of your own sin. You never come to understand how radically needy you are, how radically broken. You never come face to face and come to understand the fact that it took Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to rescue you out of your own sin and brokenness. If alternatively, alternatively, what's on the front of the church, what's held up by the pillars of the church is truth without grace, well, that says or implies that we must obey the truth in order to be saved. And then you don't get a knowledge of Christ's completely satisfying life and death. The knowledge of sin crushes you or moves you to repress it and to hide it because you'll be found out in a church like that. But see, when Jesus is the truth, when the church is a pillar of Him being the truth, then you come to understand both your radical unfitness to belong and also the fact that you are radically loved no matter what. Only if Jesus is the truth in the church, the center, do you get those two things. Leslie Newbigin, who was a missionary to India for um, a while in the 20th century, says one of the most helpful ways to comprehend what Christ did for us on the cross lies in the knowledge and understanding that he has created a place where sinful men and women, despite their sins, may be accepted by God and enabled to live and rejoice in his presence. It is, if you like, the continuation of the ministry of Jesus who received sinners and drank with them? The church is the place where this still happens. And not to give away the ending, this is why G- why In Town exists: is that we want to continue to represent Jesus in a way that He is seen as incomparably holy, and yet also incredibly welcoming and inviting. And that it's only Jesus that can create a church that can hold those two things together, that can be both at the same time, where truth and law and even rule, obeying, is important. And yet at the same time, it's done in such a way that people outside say, what is going on there? I want to be a part of that. How do I come to have that radical acceptance like these people seem to have? The church is meant to be a pillar and foundation of that truth that we were all lost, that we were needy, hurting, sinful, and yet we've been found. We've been set free. We've been loved unconditionally. And we'll do anything to bring others into that understanding. We'll do anything to bring others home because we've found a home with Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray that we would be in our individual lives as well as a church, that we would be the pillar of of your truth, that we would uphold you as the truth, that the truth about you would eviscerate all of the the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves, that others say about us, that we would be able to cling to your truth, that yes, we are sinners, yes, we are broken, but we are freely loved and delighted in by you. Jesus, help us to live into that as we confess our faith As we come to the table, I pray that that truth would become more real, would become more compelling, and would take us through this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.